Good morning, and it's good to be back with all of you after a week in Pennsylvania where we got the opportunity to see some family and uh, enjoy some time and be at a family wedding. Grateful to Andrew for bringing forth the word last Lord's Day, and good to be back with you all. I know Carl has had fun picking out new hymns that go with uh, the sermon series, and unfortunately, I don't know what he's going to do when we get back to Mark next week, because we're closing up our series of studies we've been doing this summer on the Psalms, and we pick up at Mark chapter 9 next Sunday. If you would, let's bow and pray together as we ask the Lord to open our minds and our hearts to his word. You are the bread of life, Jesus, and you feed us with your word and by your spirit. We pray now that you would speak to us, teach us, that your spirit would illumine our minds and our hearts to shape our minds and conform our hearts to become more and more like Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 99, and if you would, as the Lord is king, let's stand before the king, if you are able. And we will read from Psalm 99. So would you hear and turn your hearts towards the word of the Lord? The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise you, your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are concluding this morning our series of studies that we've been doing on the psalm, and we've been studying what it looks like to cultivate communion with God. In other words, cultivate what it looks like to foster growth, to foster development in our relationship, our communion, our partnership, our companionship with God. And we've been tackling it through the various genres, the moods of the psalm. So we've tackled it through psalms of hymns or praise when the psalmist is experiencing kind of a sense of orientation. He's, everything's going well in his world. We have moments like that. Sometimes not too often, but occasionally we have moments like that, and the psalmist is giving praise. Then we have other moments, moments of lament, whether it's individual or even times, think of this week, I hope you've taken time to just be sad and lament over the disaster, over what has gone on uh, in Houston with the hurricane and whatnot. If you think about Jesus and even the example he set, before raising Lazarus from the dead, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. What did he do? He paused at his, tomb, at his tomb to weep, to feel that humanity, to feel that pain. Or we have confidence psalms. Think of David saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Or like Andrew preached last week, 
when we talked about wisdom and cultivating wisdom in the inmost parts, learning not just the information, not just the knowledge, but wisdom as it was taught, the skill in applying, the skill in living out the values and the agenda and the ways of the Lord, practically what it looks like to love the Lord your God. And I shared with you that I took a trip last week. We talk about what does it mean to cultivate something. Of course, I had a great time. I have spent a lot of time with my two brothers. I'm the oldest of three brothers. Now, three boys get together. What do you think we talk about? What? It's football season. You know, my, I lament with Gator fans, and I lament with Seminole fans. I'm so sorry things didn't go well. You know, I'm sure we have, where's Jamie and Gabe? Some Roll Tide people out there. So we've got, we've got some people enjoying that. My Sooners, I need to let you know, 56-7. I know we only played Texas El Paso, but I'll still take 56-7. Now, Evie tells me when she watches a game with me, she says, if I wasn't a pastor, I should have been a sports announcer. She, because I'll say something, and then the announcer will say the exact same thing, and she'll say, you just said that. I try not to feel too proud about that, but, you know, I do know my sports occasionally. Now it's football season, and what do you hear all the time with football? The announcer will get on, and they'll talk about their team, and they'll go, they need to cultivate their ground game. Or else they'll be talking, and they'll sit there and say, they need to cultivate their West Coast offense. For those of you who don't know, that's the dink and dunk short passes that they throw out there. And what are they talking about? When they talk about cultivating something, they're saying grow in it, develop it, foster its... Doesn't mean arrive, doesn't mean perfection. It means growth. And remember the Psalms are the prayer book, the worship book. They're the practical worship guide for the Old Testament church. It's how to foster walking with the Lord. In the New Testament... We get Paul saying to the Galatians, walk with the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or for example, when Paul confronts Peter in Antioch and Peter was in sin, the way he confronted him is he didn't say, Peter, you're misreading doctrine. He said, Peter, you're not walking. You're not applying the doctrine you already know. In this case, justification by faith. He says, you're not applying it consistently walking in line in accordance with the implications of our doctrine, the implications. Fostering, developing, growing, and communing with God is essential if we are going to walk with the Spirit. If we are going to walk with Jesus, if we're going to walk with the Lord, we need to foster that growth. And we've been learning how to do it, and I thought about this with Psalm 99. I could have started our series with this, but I chose to end it because in one sense, it's a way to wrap it all up, pull it all together. It's also an appropriate foundation because the theme is Jesus is King. If you notice, it begins with the simple proposition, the Lord reigns. Psalms 93 and 97 also begin with that same proclamation, that same declaration. In a sense, The foundation of it all is a recognition that the Lord is king. Now, that is not a very popular message to preach in our world today. And I'm not sure how popular a message it is to preach, or maybe I should say to live out in the church today. For we live in a culture today that is often referred to as postmodern. And I have no idea what that really means. 
and I more agree with the folks who say, whether we call it postmodern, post-Christian, post-whatever, it's kind of post-everything. And even though there's no one definition of post-everything, if you listen to the pundits, if you read them, what they basically seem to say is everybody seems to agree on one thing, and that is the rejection of what they call a meta-narrative. Now, of course, you might be sitting there and going, what in the world is a meta-narrative? Well, I'm glad you asked. It gives me the opportunity to tell you. A meta-narrative is a story, a narrative that unifies or defines and directs a culture or a group. So, for example, the word meta means undergirding, and narrative means story. So meta-narrative is an undergirding story. It is a story that undergirds, that unites, and that defines a culture, a group, or a society. It is comprehensive. It is all-encompassing. It is unifying to a group. So, for example, in this country, for many years, the ideals of democracy and freedom was America's meta-narrative. Now, of course, in today's culture, in today's world, we don't have one unifying story, which is why we have such division, such polarization. And this presents the world, it presents the church, if we are going to be serious about our commission to make disciples of all nations, if we are serious about walking with Jesus as king, if we are serious about evangelism and discipleship, it presents us with both a challenge and an opportunity. It presents us, first of all, with a challenge because there is a rejection of truth. There is a rejection of one overarching truth. But there's also an opportunity because there's the opportunity to present the world with the meta-narrative of the Bible. That is, of course, if we know the meta-narrative of the Bible. And what is the meta-narrative of the Bible? Richard Pratt, who used to teach at RTS Orlando, now is the director of Third Millennium. We support him as one of our missionaries. Richard Pratt says, everyone has lost the punch of Christianity because we've lost the story of Christianity. And according to Dr. Pratt, and I agree with him. What he is proposing is that we need to give people the meta-narrative of Jesus as king. The Lord reigns. The Lord is king. He calls it the imperial model, not the democratic model. The imperial model of the kingdom of God. Not the American meta-narrative of an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is great for a country. I support it for a country, but it's not the biblical mandate. You don't find the Bible in an inalienable right to life when the Bible, when Jesus himself says, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for my sake will find it. Psalm 99 teaches us that the Lord is king, that the Lord reigns. What do we learn from this psalm about the kingship of God? What do we learn about the kingship of Jesus? Well, the psalm is structured, actually, it's, there are many ways you can structure it. I want to structure it in two ways. Because verse 5 and verse 9, if you look, end with the same basic refrain, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Or verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his holy mountain. 
and then a refrain about the holiness of God. That sums up the first two stanzas. Verses 1 through 5 is the fact of the Lord's kingship. And verses 6 through 9 is the character of his kingship. So in other words, the reality, he is king. Verses 6 through 9, what kind of king is he? What is the character? What is the heart of this king? Let's begin with the text at verse 1. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Verse 1 begins, as I said, with this very simple declaration, the Lord reigns. Then there is a call. And notice who the call goes out to. The call goes out to all peoples, all nations, to worship, to exalt, to love the Lord your God. Every person is held accountable to worship the Lord. In other words, we were created, we were designed, we were built to be lovers to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength was the reason we were built. Now, I don't know where you might be with the Lord right now. But the truth is, the fact is, that He reigns. He is in charge. He is in control. Like I said earlier, Christianity is not a democracy. Christianity is an imperial model. The Lord is king. Now, that might be a comfort to some of you. Some of you might be, I would hope, some of you are humming the words, the great words to our hymn, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. To others, you might be struggling a little bit with this. It's not so much of a comfort. You're not liking God too much right now. You might be mad at God. Let's just be honest. The Psalms, if they encourage us to anything, if you're going to cultivate companionship and communion with God, you have to deal with your heart where your heart is. Even if you don't like him very much right now, guess what? If you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, he has you. He still loves you. He still cares for you. Let me assure you, none of this throws him. None of this takes him by surprise. None of this catches him off guard. He is the king. Though the, world, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And if you look at the end of verse 1, the second parallel line that's found there, it says, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Notice again he's enthroned. Who gets enthroned? A king. That's imagery, that's language again of a king. And in referring to the cherubim, depicted, they're depicted over the Ark of the Covenant that is in the Holy of the Holies. They're to face each other, looking towards the cover. This is referring back to when the tabernacle was built and the Ark of the Covenant was built back in the book of Exodus. And the point of the Exodus, and we're going to see this, and here's the psalmist referring and alluding back to the narrative of the Exodus 
is that God saves his people, God delivers his people for communion. The tabernacle was for the point that the Lord could live right in the midst, be present, not distant, not far off, but in the midst of his people. And as Exodus 25 tells us, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing this mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And what was the point of it? Well, in the psalm we hear, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, for holy is he. And that is repeated in verses 3, 5, and 9. The Lord is to be exalted at his footstool. And in Chronicles, we read this, the chroniclers highlighting Israel's history, and he's speaking specifically about King David. And he says this about David and David's history. He says in 1 Chronicles 28, And King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. The theme of kingship relates to the theme of holiness. It's reminiscent of Isaiah, what he experienced when he was confronted with the Lord's glory in the temple. Isaiah chapter 6, when it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraph, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you know, this is our future. You better get used to this kind of repetition. Because in Revelation chapter 4, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, continuously, they never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The psalmist is focusing on who God is. Verse 3 says, let them praise your great and awesome name. It's not just about what he gives you. It's about who he is in himself. And who is he? He is king. Now the world that we live in may admit that there's a God of some sort. Higher being, spiritual power, higher power, whatever it is. Again, I'll refer to football. You watch football this year. They'll go into the end zone. What do they do? They'll do some sort of dance and point upwards. I would love to ask them, what are you doing? So it's no problem in the world to believe in a God. But the world is loath to submit or love the God of the Bible. See, the world wants a God of their own choosing. The world wants a God of their own creating and their own making. And let me ask you this question. If you create your own God, who are you communing with? You're only communing, you're only, your companion, if you would, is yourself. If you don't have a God who can challenge you, if you don't have a God who can confront you, if you don't have a God who can contradict you, you don't have a God who can comfort you. You don't have a God who can give you significance and meaning and purpose. You don't have a God who can fill you. You don't have a God who can satisfy you. 
Are you cultivating communion? Are you fostering and developing growth with the King, the God of the Bible? See, let me ask you a few questions. Who's king of your finances? Who's king of your friendships? Who's king, king, not president, king of your time, your resources, your work? The Lord reigns. He is holy, unique, set apart. How do we do that? How do we foster and cultivate growth with the king? Well, we need to see what kind of king he is. It's not enough to have the fact of his kingship. You need to know what is the character, what is the heart of this. What kind of king is this that we are called, let all the peoples exalt you. What kind of king are we called to? Well, verse 6 begins, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. He kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Now listen, what is the psalmist here doing? First of all, he's directing us to look to the past. Specifically, as he does often throughout book four of the composition of the Psalms, he's connecting these Psalms to the Exodus narrative. Specifically here, he's beginning with Moses and Aaron, and then he throws in Samuel in there. And he's beginning with Moses and Aaron, and in Exodus 24, he's referring back, and he's referring back to the building of the tabernacle, and specifically the Ark of the Covenant. So specifically, in Exodus 24, we read, Then he said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. What does he want? He wants communion. He wants revelation. He wants to know and be known. And he says, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So here's Moses and Aaron, along with Aaron's two eldest sons, and 70 elders summoned to meet with the Lord. When you add Samuel in, what do we learn? We learn that in some way they were prophets, they were priests, and Samuel was the last judge. They all represented both God to Israel, and they represented Israel to God. So in other words, they prayed, they interceded, and they were spokesmen in both directions. So thus the psalm tells us they called to the Lord, and the Lord answered to them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimony and the statute he gave them. O Lord our God, he answered them. We read in Exodus 13, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, we're asking the question, what is the character of this king? The character of this king is that he is relational. He wants to be known. He reveals himself. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud and in the fire. He guided them. He led them. Scholar of John Calvin, a man by the name of Matthew Bolton, puts it this way. He says, Calvin consistently crafts his ideas 
for the sake of practical formation, and so ultimately for the sake of ongoing companionship and union with God and Christ. And then Calvin himself, when teaching about the Lord's Supper that we're about to go to in just a few moments, Calvin wrote, for although the faithful come into this communion, the word koinonia, or fellowship, on the very first day of their calling, nevertheless, inasmuch as the life of Christ increases in them, even though we're united to all of Christ at our salvation, growth, cultivating communion, is the life of Christ, our experience of Christ, increasing in our life, growing and developing in our life. And Calvin writes, inasmuch as the life of Christ increases in them, he daily offers himself to be enjoyed by them. This is the koinonia, the communion, which they receive in the sacred supper. Now we're reading through the psalm, and verse 4 tells us that the heart of the king as well is that he is a just and righteous king. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. O Lord our God, you answer them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. So how can we have communion and union with this king, this holy king, this righteous king, who loves justice, who loves righteousness, who's committed to holiness and righteousness? How can he have relationship with us? How can we be his beloved Are you sensing the tension here? Are you sensing the drama here? We said earlier that the psalmist is alluding back to the Exodus. And in the Exodus, when you get to chapters 32, 33, and 34, you've got, and I can't do the whole narrative for you, but you've got got this kind of interesting episode of the golden calf. Remember this? Here's Israel, they're freed, they're delivered from Egypt. Here's Moses going up on the mountain to meet with the Lord to receive the Ten Commandments, to receive the tablets of stone. According to the people, they were getting a little edgy, a little impatient. Why is Moses taking so long? We don't like how he's doing this. We're not fond of his leadership. This isn't going the way. Uh, Aaron, you lead us. And by the way, make us another god. Aaron did the only thing that the people of God would have known from their days in Egypt, and that's built a golden calf, and they did that. Remember the principle, God is a holy, righteous, and just God. And as a holy God, he's also a jealous God. And he will not compete with any other gods. And he wants communion. So the primary question before us is, how can this holy, perfect, righteous, just God Live with people who are giving themselves and surrendering and trusting and worshiping another God. And Moses is interceding and God basically says to Moses, for the sake of my word, for the sake of my people, I'll spare you, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to live amongst you. I'm not going to go with you. And Moses, interceding on behalf, says, if you don't go with, if you're not present with us, if you're not in our midst, don't send us up. And in the midst of this communion, in the midst of this, chapter 34, God passes by and gives Moses a definition of himself. This is what he says. The Lord came down in the cloud 
and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, the world loves that part, doesn't it? And maybe we do too. That's my kind of God. Slow to anger. I love that kind of God. Doesn't get angry with me. Forgiving rebellion, sin, and wickedness. But the verse in the passage doesn't. God's definition, his revelation. Remember, God wants to be known. And he wants to be known in his fullness. The rest of the verse goes on to say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Psalm 99 says that God, even though he is forgiving, is an avenger of their wrongdoings. He avenges our wrongdoings. He avenges every one of our wrongdoings. He avenges the wrongdoings we're doing right now. Because none of us are sitting here loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there's a tension. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's kind. He's forgiving. He's good. Yet he will not avenge wrongdoings. And he's committed to this covenantal nature of living and dwelling and tabernacling and walking in our very midst. That we participate in him. That we're united with him. How is that tension resolved? And in John chapter 1, we're introduced to the Word. And we're told that the Word was not only with God, but was God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And we're told that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And that word dwelling is the word tabernacling. The Word became flesh. That means had kidneys, had a spine, had skin and bones, got sick, caught colds, felt things, was human in every way we are, and lived amongst us, tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. See, Jesus comes tabernacling among us, revealing both grace and truth. In other words, revealing the full definition of God. Revealing the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and forgiving rebellion and sin and wickedness. Avenging wrongdoings. And where is this both grace and truth revealed? The cross of Jesus Christ is the clearest fullest, greatest revelation of the glory of God you can get. See, God did avenge our wrongdoings. God is just and righteous, and he avenged our wrongdoings, past, present, and even future, on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why if you want to see God look at Jesus, and if you want to see the fullest definition. If you want to know God, look at the cross, because it is through the cross that we have union and communion with God 
through our union with Jesus Christ. Long ago, the writer to the Hebrews says, at many times and in many ways, through men like Moses and Aaron and Samuel, God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, whom he appointed king. He handed everything to his son in the economy of salvation, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Then he says, after making purification for sins, after avenging your wrongdoings and mine, paying for them in full. See, you've been punished. You've been fully punished. On the cross was your punishment for your wrongdoings. Justice was fulfilled. And after making purification for sins, what did Jesus do? He sat down. He was raised to life, ascended into glory, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And you have been raised with him, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There is no more glory we can get than taking Jesus in. You have all the glory you can ever want or need by taking Jesus in. Are you cultivating communion with the king? Our our life is hidden, secure, wrapped up, enveloped with Christ and God. We're safe and he is our refuge through him and we can cultivate communion with the king. Father, we do pray that you would teach us to walk with you, to live with you. We pray, Father, that you would teach us to apply this word, to live it out. And now as we come before your supper, Lord, we thank you that this is your meal that you invite us to, to commune with yourself, a means of grace. We pray, Father, your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.